a section of Ephesians chapter 6. We're in Ephesians chapter 6. Where um, we've, we've studied exhaustively that the Apostle Paul has laid down the command be filled by the Spirit. He has given the results in verses uh, 19 through 21 of Ephesians 5. Let's just get a little bit of a warm up. Let's practice our. Our communication. Does anybody uh, know what the results of the filling of the Spirit are in Ephesians chapter 5? What are some results? You could summarize it. You could read it, but you could summarize it. You just give me in your own words. What, what happens if you're being filled by the Spirit? What does that affect for you? What's the difference? You're yeah, you're, you're having fellowship with God. And this is not just a status, right? It's, a, it's an enjoyment of God's things with him. But what's the result that Paul says will be? Yeah. Yeah, living according to our calling. And the specifics are communication. Remember Ephesians 5.19, after saying, be filled by the Spirit, what does he say? That how we talk to who? One another. That we're... Uh, Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Who else do we communicate with that that'll change how we, we affect, it'll affect how we talk? Who, who else is our, is our interlocutor? Who else are we talking to? Yeah, yeah, to the Lord. Singing, making melody in our hearts to the Lord. And uh, what will that change in our attitude? How will our, our thinking be about our lives? Oh, woe is me. Poor me. My life isn't the following things. Everybody in the world can do it. Nobody's resurrected yet. We can all complain. But what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to complain or are we supposed to be grateful? For all things, when? Giving thanks for all things? All the time? To who? To whom? Sorry. God our Father. On what basis? In whose name? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. See how you talk to one another, how you talk to God, and then how you treat other people. This is going to be awesome. Submitting one to another in the fear of Christ. And then the household code, the submission of one to another. That's what Paul's doing. And so this is why we in this church emphasize the spiritual life so much. Because every relationship in life is supposed to be the product of the filling of the Holy Spirit. How I talk to others <clears throat> because of how I talk to God and how he's talked to me. We notice in Colossians chapter 3, the same effects come. It doesn't say be filled by the Spirit. It says let the Word of Christ fill you or let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. And so the saturation principle, the Holy Spirit uses His Word to make me spiritual, to make me think like God wants me to think about life, about Him, about people, about circumstances. And now we can understand this concept of submission one to another within the various authority structures God has uh, ordained and and in this case permitted in Ephesians chapter five twenty two through thirty three how husbands and wives are to function 
And 6, 1 through 5, parents and their children, or 1 through 4, parents and children. And now we're to slaves and masters, slaves and masters, and 6, 5 through 9. And, uh, and, and we're in the master section. We spent a lot of time talking about slaves, spirit-filled slaves. And now your, your note sheet says spirit-filled masters. And it's a crazy thought in our culture that someone would be enslaved. But it's not. It is not crazy in world history. The Bible speaks to every civilization because it speaks to every human being. This should steal us to understand that the circumstances of our lives and our economics may change, but God's Word does not. And if you find yourself enslaved, oh, the notes corporal was supposed to take care of that. We'll have to to review that with him. Glad you got it. Anybody not have notes? Good notes up there? So um, the, the idea of a master and a slave is very foreign to us, and it's, it's almost like bad words, almost like language we don't want to say. It's those parts of the Bible that are, make us very uncomfortable. Keep reading Exodus after the, uh, after the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. Keep reading pretty quickly after he establishes the law for the altar and how you will make an altar to serve God. He immediately talks about the law of slavery in Israel. <clears throat> You do take the Bible in the time in which it was written, and we do see that in this circumstance, the Apostle Paul is not contradicting himself, where elsewhere he says, if you can be free, be free, don't be owned by anyone. Nevertheless, whatever situation you find yourself in, be God's free man in that status and what you find yourself, and that's very key. And so today we're looking at the people on top, the masters what they're supposed to be like if they are going to be filled by the Spirit and therefore submit one to another in the fear of Christ. Ephesians 6, 9 says, Masters, do the same things to them. So everything we read about the slave serving God and therefore obeying the master, the person under authority saying, God is the authority and I submit to him. Everything we read about him and not as with eye service as men pleasers, not Uh, externally but internally all those things about the slave the master is to think this way also and toward the slave I'm supposed to put myself out in service to those under my authority it's a radical concept whoa 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 whoa. you're going to take care you're going to provide for you're going to um, serve those in a status of servant Yeah, that's exactly, again, what Jesus shows us in his object lesson in John chapter 13. Give up threatening. Now, there's a negative. Positive, do the same things. Negative, give up threatening. So don't do some things that that people tend to do, but do something that no one thinks of, that a master would treat his slave. By this verse, I think that um, someone acting this way all the slaves that remember something like 70 to maybe more percent of the roman population is enslaved we talk about the spartans everyone wants to, everybody's getting the molon labe um, um, tattoos and bumper stickers come and take it we're all being spartans watch out you don't want to join you don't want to know about the spartans <laughs> uh, that's uh that's propaganda <clears throat> and it's um it's that's a that was a very wicked wicked culture um and um, even compared to the Athenians. And, uh, but the Spartans were 90% slave population, and it wasn't racial at all. It wasn't racial at all. You couldn't tell a Spartan from a helot, a slave in Sparta, except for the color of their, their robe. 
This has nothing to do with the things that we make it about. This is about an economic situation that you find yourself in that you really have no other recourse but to call out to God and say, uh, you see what's going on here? These people own me. Can you, bl- God, what, what's happening? This was very dramatic for, uh, um, for John Newton. John Newton, who you all know, he wrote the great, the most famous English uh, song of praise to God, which is Amazing Grace. He also wrote um, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken and uh, some other things. But John Newton um, was a slave trader. He was a slave trader. And he actually um, found himself sold into slavery right alongside the Africans in the Caribbean that he was slave trading. Through a series of uh, God-ordained events, this white Englishman found himself a slave, I think, on a, I think it was a sugar plantation. That's beautiful. <laughs> That's just, that is rich. And later became uh, the spirit, if you will, or the, not the spirit, but the, the, the theologian in many ways behind the abolitionist movement in England. The pastor that was so effective for William Wilberforce was this famous John Newton, little, little country preacher, Baptist pastor, and, and um, who had <coughs> committed atrocities as a slave trader and found himself uh, drinking the cup that he had been serving. When you find yourself in this situation, it's awful, but we all find ourselves in under suffering, committing ourselves to God, to him who judges righteously in First Peter chapter 2. So the masters don't need to threaten. They need to serve and not threaten, knowing that both their master, the slave's master, and yours is in heaven. There's no partiality with him. He's not saying, well, you get a pass for mistreating your slaves or anyone because you're the master. No, you are held to a higher standard when you have higher responsibility. And so this household code completely takes worldly wicked slavery out of, out of the, the picture and then says if you have people in the household, there has to be a household responsibility. You're protecting, you're preserving, you're training, you're equipping. That, that's the idea. And so Roman slavery is not the same thing we had in America. It's, it's similar, but it's not the same thing. But it, it is an undesirable institution. But... Paul is paving the way for, uh, for what would be equipping for freeing those slaves because now they're being cared for, they're being equipped, they're being strengthened. This is how Paul says for Christians to treat other believers. And this is in, in the circumstance. Now, there whole, there's a whole book of the Bible about Roman slavery and how Christians would treat Christians in this institution. It is the book of... Yeah, Philemon, or Philemon, or however you say. This is the book of Philemon is the uh, slave owner. Onesimus is the slave who has become a Christian under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And now Paul says, I've got a claim on him as a spiritual father. I have a claim on him, and, and I've got a claim on you as your spiritual father. And we need to look at this as Christians, and there's a right way for you to consider Onesimus and the right way for me to treat him. And Paul is gracious and um, full of charity for the wrongs that Onesimus has done and the expectation that Philemon will become a disciple maker for Onesimus.
In Colossians chapter 4, same thing, remember, same effects. I said last week we don't have masters. We do. It's, it's the chapter break is a bad break. 4.1 should have been the end of chapter, 39, or chapter 3 in Colossians. He says, Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness. See, that's a positive statement, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. He only makes a positive statement. Grant to them justice and fairness. The word justice is dikaion, uh, uh, righteousness. Justice, the basis of treating people uh, on God's account the way he wants them to be treated. And uh, with justice or with fairness, uh, a word that would probably be best translated fairness or equity. There is a right way to treat people. And so you, you do this because of your master in heaven. And this is a beautiful thing to recognize. We see someone in authority over us abusing their authority and we think we have no recourse but Paul is saying, oh yes, you have a recourse. Your master is in heaven. That, that boss is, that person in charge, his master is in heaven. And God is judging us for how we execute our responsibility. So I have three things that I basically want to develop on the basis of this instruction about everybody's under authority, including the master. The first is the weight of authority, the problem of God letting us suffer in our circumstances and the real solution to all authority problems is that God is the authority. This is, this is the way, I think, a rationale that will help us think through in our circumstances. Now, you're not enslaved to, to man here. I talk, last week, I talked about how our culture is politically trying to do that by making the government the master instead of letting God be the master. But, um, but put that aside, you're not enslaved, but this definitely applies to you because you are under authority and you do exercise authority. The person who has the authority or the right to make the decision, that would be like the boss. And the person under that authority who has to choose yes or no to obey the boss, that would be like the, 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 the employee or the slave. And you can see how this easily applies. On the concept of the weight of authority, I have four things I wanna say. The first is that the person under authority feels pressure. When you're under someone's authority, the first blank on your sheet, the first, the first thing on your page, the person under authority feels pressure from the person in charge, from that person ex- exercising the authority over him. That's guaranteed. That's part of life. You feel pressure from someone who's in authority. Secondly, the person exercising the authority, the person with that higher authority feels pressure from the person over him. This is how it works. This is, a, this is the establishment of a chain of command. When you find yourself under someone else's authority, I guarantee you, you are in authority over someone yourself. Prove it. You have to make your own choices for you and nobody can choose for you, you choose for you. That's why the, the ethical discussion of torture because you're trying to co-opt or force someone to do something they don't, from their own will, choose to do. And then we could talk about the relative merits of torture and saving lives of children and so forth and get into all those wonderful Jack Bauer conversations. But, but the point is, when you have to make your choices, that makes you an authority of sorts over your own life. And so when the, the, the boss over me says what he wants me to do, I need to consider and I will make my choice either to obey or disobey. That's an authority move on my part. But you feel pressure from the person over you. And this is going to be true for everyone in the world. Everybody has an authority. There's no such thing as anyone that has no authority over him except God. And number three was, no one is free from higher authority but God. 
No one is free from higher authority but God. So the person under authority feels pressure from the person exercising it over him. We all know this. The person exercising the authority feels pressure from the person over him. And no one is free from this arrangement but God. No one is free from higher authority but God. He's, the buck stops with him. Harry Truman put it on his desk. The buck stops here. But if you asked him, really? He'd say, well, of course I believe in God. He's really the one in charge. So when you start thinking, and Romans 13, 1, all authority comes from God. So we always climb the chain back up to really who we serve when we're dealing with an authority structure. And so number four, and last on the weight of authority, how we exercise our authority is a matter of accountability. Accountability. This is the original design of the original man. Why did God say he made man in his image? In Genesis 1, 26 and 28. Why did God make man? He said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule. Man is a king by design. He is an authority. One exercising subordinated power that has been, or delegated power as a subordinate under the higher authority. That's our original design. Okay, and, and that's what your destiny is. Why do I say because as more than conquerors, you've been marked out as Christians to rule with Christ. The Apostle Paul says, what in the world, in 1 Corinthians 6, why are you going to, uh, to the courts of the unbelievers? Don't you know that you're going to judge, rule over the angels? See, Paul, Paul's thinking, he's not there yet. We're not, we're not judging the angels yet, but that's what our destiny is. So let's, let's walk according to our our, our purpose that, that we're being groomed to work in. I, I think this phase of life is not about getting through. I don't think it's about getting, getting, the, you know, getting the college I want to get to or, um, or uh, get the job I want to have or retire when I want. And do. It's not about the things that we do that are the important details of life. That's not what it's about. It's a grooming process. It's a grooming training phase where God is equipping us for this role of rulership with Jesus Christ in his eternal kingdom. That's what, that's what we're here for. That's the original design in Genesis, and that's the end of things in, at the end of Revelation when Jesus uh, uh, hands the kingdom over to the Father who is all in all. And so this is, this is what you're for. Think about this. Romans 8, we're headed there on second hour. Not today, but soon. Romans 8 Paul argues on the basis of the revelation of the, of the sons of God, of you, which will free the creation from its corruption. This is, the, this is what we're talking about, ruling with Jesus Christ in His coming kingdom. Fellow heirs with Him, if indeed we suffer with Him, so we, we may be glorified together with Him. Now, today, every decision you make as an authority over yourself or over your children or over your your job or whatever, wherever you find yourself making decisions because you're the person to make the decisions. In every instance where you're doing this, this is worship. This is how Christians think about it. This is worship to God. I make the worship decision about uh, the, the thing in front of me, whatever it is. And so as a master, how do I serve God in terms of these people in my household? That's the attitude. That's what Paul is saying. That is spirit-filled masters. Problem. God lets us suffer in unfair circumstances. It is a problem. Everyone deals with it. You ever had an unfair situation? Sometimes we're so rich that we don't even 
feel it. We don't even feel the unfairness or whatever. And, and sometimes if we, if we get our, our toe stubbed just a little bit, <gasps> it's, it's overwhelming. And that's, you know, that's the millennial snowflake kind of attitude, the Fort Snowflake. Um, you know, I can't, uh, I, there, was a, <laughs> there was a news article the other day, you probably saw it, that, that said uh, there was a report on what the millennials are most concerned about as a generation. I, I'm, not, I'm not beating up on the millennials. I'm just, <laughs> I'm, re- I'm really not. We shouldn't. Because where did they come from? They came from us. How did they get to where they are? We we gave them a participation trophy and all that. And um, so so don't don't beat up on them. Understand we have a stewardship here, of of, of mentorship and engagement with with all people. And the young people are strategic. But but they ask them. Here's the mindset of where the youth culture is today. What are the biggest concerns? What what are the biggest stresses in your life? And like oh you can't believe how bad my life is. The iPhone battery doesn't last long enough. Okay, I mean, have you ever, have your, has your battery ever died when you're depending on your phone to navigate? It's a problem. I mean, it could put you out. You could, you could find yourself having to go to stop what you're doing and go charge your phone for an hour and then to be able to continue what you're doing. That's, a, that's so inconvenient. But you've got access to clean water. The best health care in the world. I mean, we're rich as a civilization, and we don't understand that because we're, we're fish swimming around in it. Fish doesn't know he's in water. So we don't know that, that this is really not a problem. That's why we call first world problems. It's just the idea of the, the lifestyle of, of the wealthy. They don't know they're wealthy. And so it's sad to see this, and it's even, um, it's even I think, sadder. Is that how you say it? It's more sad or it's sadder? Can I get a grammar ruling? We'll go with sadder, <laughs> more sad. <laughs> it's really unfortunate that I don't know which one of those it is. I appreciate that. What, what was my point again? It's the, what I'm saying is, that can you can, contemplate what would be necessary in a, a young person's experience to recognize how good we had it? to come to a perspective that sees, oh, that really wasn't a problem. That was just a little bit of an inconvenience. Have you ever seen young people that had to deal with, uh, with the death of a loved one or, 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 or someone close to them that they had to nurse them in hospice or something, that they had to deal with real life, like life and death, or somebody that's actually been hungry or had to go without something essential or necessary? Have you, have you ever dealt with people like this? Of course you have. When you see a young person that has buried a parent after a two-year illness, you see depth, you see a reality, you see a grasp of life that otherwise we don't really feel. We have to go through something. We have to go through some hardship to see what life is really about sometimes, and that's Romans 5, 1 through 3, that tribulation produces ultimately character and hope, which doesn't disappoint. But God lets us suffer in unfair circumstances. Everyone is a work in progress, as we say. Everybody is in a progress of development for rulership. That's why the suffering. That's why you go through the troubles that you go through. Secondly, we were all a work in progress. And secondly, God uses our circumstances. You'd like me to spell that one, wouldn't you? I can spell it on the fly. C-I-R-C-U-M-S-T-A-N-C-E-S. That's how you fill in that one, circumstances. He uses these things in our lives to 
work on us, to train us. Everyone, I look around, looking around at the young and the young at heart. Everybody is in a process. Everyone here. Some of you haven't shared with me, but you, you know, I could tell because you're breathing. You got pulse. I could tell that you have circumstances in which God is working on you. Third, it may be that you have not learned what you need to learn from your circumstance yet. There's nothing for you to fill in. That's just for you to read. Why does he keep letting me suffer this, this loss, this separation, this trouble, this, this lack? Why doesn't he just solve it? I've talked to him about it. I've prayed about it off and on. Why doesn't he let me just, why doesn't he give me relief from this situation? He's not done working on what he's working on there. You haven't finished the course of instruction. You're on lesson 25 of a 30 lesson block of instruction. You want to take the final exam. Well, you haven't had all the lesson yet. You got to keep studying. And that's what we're talking about. We're being groomed and trained. Fourth, but when we are not viewing our, our situation through the perspective of God's instruction, we just hurt and we see no end to the relief. And this is why the saturation with the Word. This is why the slave code. This is why the master code. This is why the Word of God speaks to our very situation. Because God wants us to look at our situation from His perspective. So I said... When we are not viewing our situation through the perspective, the lens of God's instruction, His Word, then we just hurt for no reason. What, what's the point? And that's why the Word of God, that's one reason He wants you to bring your situation to Him. He wants you to take His Word and think it through on these terms. And, and so what we're doing is giving a value, an eternal value to our suffering as we see how God thinks about it. We're seeing his eternal value. Fifth, in this frame of mind, we can easily react to unfair pressure and make several wrong decisions. You can easily react to it. This hurts. I haven't done anything wrong that I can think of that I'm really not aware of. And so I don't think God's disciplining me, but he sure is hurt letting this hurt. Okay, right. I mean, in your household, and your professional life, at work, where, wherever the people are, where the, you feel like they're, they're stabbing you with hot pokers of the soul, and it hurts, and your life is painful, and you're hurting, well, um, there are a couple of things you can do when you don't have the Word of God in you, saturating you, you're not being filled by the Spirit, you're not spiritual thinking about it. And I don't mean fake it, I mean, well, you know, roll your eyes, well, the Lord's good. I mean, you're really in the Word and you're really thinking it through. Sometimes you need a brother or sister come alongside and think it through together. And I don't mean you complain to them about God. I mean, you go to God together and complain to Him about it. <laughs> That's lament. That's all through the Psalms as they uh, sh shared in the Chafer Conference this last month. One thing we do is we blame God for not... What? What do people blame God for not doing? This is where you would kind of fill in the blank. We blame God for not... He doesn't help. But that's not what I said, but that's a good one. What, what, what do people blame God for not doing? We're hurting, we're in the situation. He doesn't help. That's a great... I'm looking for um, one-syllable answers. What's that? He doesn't stop it. God, don't you know this herd's like, yeah, I made everything. I know all about your nerves, everything. Oh yeah, I'm fully aware. And yeah, this is the deal. You're going through it. And so you're like, 
We blame God for not, I'm saying, fixing it <laughs> soon enough. That's why the long blank. Because there's always the time frame. Like, well, God says he's going to fix it, but he, I need it now. This hurts, right? Our, a lot of times our complaint is timing. God, don't you know? Psalm 22, a prophecy of the sufferings of Christ by David. Uh, how long? Why are you so far from, the, from my groaning? How long, O oh Lord? Time is a big factor when we're not thinking about, uh, when we're not thinking about God's use of this. And maybe you are thinking about it. It still hurts. You still need to call out to him. Yes, all through the scriptures. Another thing we'll do when we're not thinking God's thoughts about our trouble is we'll conclude that God is what? We're, th- we're thinking this is unfair. God is what? He's ignoring. Yeah. What would you say? He's unjust. Now, careful about that. My sins today deserve what? Eternal damnation. Deserve. I don't get what I deserve. I get what Jesus deserves. He got what I deserved, the cross. That's a beautiful substitution. But, but he's unfair? How easy is it for me to say unfair just because I don't like what I'm going through? This happened. I don't like it. So, uh, unfair. <laughs> I will make my little my little infantile lawyer stance that this is unfair somehow and not be thinking about what real fairness looks like. But we'll conclude that God is, ready for it, deists, we'll conclude that God is not involved. Right? Isn't that what you think? Like he didn't, well, there may be, uh, he may be uh, God and he may love us, but he doesn't care about my situation. This is what we'll do when we suffer. We'll, we'll immediately conclude that God is uninvolved or if we let this go long enough, we'll become a little functional atheist and say, uh, well, God is irrelevant to the situation when God is the one holding me in this situation. You know, the footprints on the sand, he was carrying me all along. <laughs> There's only one set of footprints. Why didn't you walk with me? I was carrying you. If you were a good tracker, you would have noticed that those footprints were deeper when they went to just two. But anyway. Letter C, we will attempt in this situation to find a solution that will inevitably, inevitably violate his what? In the context. God's character, that's that's ultimate definition of sin. I'm saying authority structures will always find a way to say, well, in this case, I can't submit to this authority, and we find a way to violate that authority. And we say, well, you know, it's, it's the circumstance, it hurts, whatever. Most common experience or our observation of this is, is in divorce. When the law says it's you know, no-fault divorce and the, the pain is so excruciating of living with that dolt or dolt-et that you're stuck with, it's so easy to just say, I'd rather be poor and on my own than deal with this insanity. And so we, we, just, we just we punch out. We pull the ripcord. And Matthew 19 doesn't speak to us at all. Just for one example. It's the, it's the norm of our civilization. And our experiences tell us more than the scriptures about that instance. Can you, can you walk with me and fill in f- uh, three more blanks? The ultimate solution to authority problems is this. God's the authority. It's the doctrine of sovereignty. All authority comes from God. When you've got somebody down the chain that's violating God's expectations and how they carry out their authority, just know that the people under them, they're accruing blessing and reward. That's the end of Colossians 3 on slavery. God's in charge. God is watching. And when you're unfairly treated and you bear up under it, God rewards that for eternity. 
You're trusting yourself to him who judges righteously. So, number one, if you're under authority, remember that you are under God's authority first. So, you're a, you're a wife, and you've got a husband, and the Bible says he's your head in the relationship. He, the head and body discussion of headship and marriage. So, you're a wife, and you have an authority over you. Well, before you say, oh, what, a, what an idiot that I have to obey or, or submit to this man who doesn't have, he doesn't know how to go from step one to step two. When you have, now that's not applicable in this church at all, but, uh, but, but you can imagine and counsel people that are struggling with this. When they find that they are, um, they are having to obey someone that they do not respect, well, we go to God, do you respect him? He's the authority. The authority comes from him and you do it as unto him. I trust in him. And so this is his work in progress, this person that I've got to submit to. And I'll do that. That's the rationale. That's the thought process. It's very easy to talk about here today, isn't it? Everybody's all dressed and nice and combed your hair and did your, uh, did your oral hygiene. Thank you. So evil. So it's, you know, everybody smells great. Mostly, and, and no, no, y'all, you, you do, you do. But, but we're all, we've, we've got our church face on, right? This is very, very excruciating at, at first when you start thinking about it in the moment. And you've got to put anger aside and not give in to anger. And you have to think it through. And the Bible's constantly telling me to think. Second, therefore, your work is for him. That's it, for him. And you need to do it in a way that pleases him. For God, that's what you're doing. Your work is for him. Third, if, you are his, if you're the boss, remember that you're under God's authority for how you exercise your authority. For how you exercise your authority over subordinates. That's the point of the, the master code in 6, 9, Ephesians 6.9 and uh, Colossians 4.1. You're under God's authority for how you exercise your authority. And fourth, the consequence for misusing these opportunities are eternal the consequences are eternal god is going to render an evaluation for how we performed and so this is a totally different way of thinking about authority and slavery and masters and and because it all comes back to submit one to another when you submit one to another in the fear of christ and the power of the holy spirit you're actually not thinking of yourself you're thinking of the other whether you're a slave or a master Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to think through this very difficult topic of being under unfair authority, unfair rulership. Help us be strong in your spirit, in your word, to, uh, to, to cling to these things and to trust you and not fail when you're testing us with the circumstances. Help us succeed as we trust in you. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. And we all said, Amen. Amen.